on this episode of The Kinked Wire. If you are in a device world and you have a whole bunch of engineers, if you don't give power to your physicians to help you design, what you'll end up with is a device that works for the engineers, but not for the physicians. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, guest host Nishida Kapari speaks with a panel of IRs involved with clinical trials, industry reps, and others on the value of and keys to building a strong relationship with industry. So thank you everyone for joining us on another podcast. We have Nadine Abijad from University of California, Irvine. She's PI of several industry-sponsored grants. We have Jim Beninati. Jim recently transitioned as the CMO of Penumbra. We've also been very fortunate to have Laura King join us. Uh, Laura is actually from the industry side. She was with GE primarily in their healthcare world. She led the interventional cardiology business and then paired up with Fred Lee and was the president of New Wave and then now is a founder and CEO of Felucent Medicals. And then, of course, Fred Lee, all of us who are in the ablation world owe him a big thank you for Microwave. And then Sarah White is at Medical College of Wisconsin and, again, has done several industry-led trials and is a research powerhouse. So I'm going to start off with Nadine and Sarah first. Was your connection with industry something that was sort of planned out or was it organic? And what got you to lead so many critical trials? Nadine. I guess in my case, you know, I was at the NIH, but in a way it's kind of mentorship. And I was introduced first industry partner actually through Brad, who kind of put us together. And so we kind of started thinking about trials and collaborations. And honestly, like once you do it once, then it becomes kind of, you know, practice makes perfect. So it just kind of grew from there, you know, becomes something that you just start developing now more. And then it turns into like you're seeking out or they're seeking you out. And so with me when it started out, it was just through mentorship. And I think that's a critical thing. Somebody senior to you kind of gets you to the right place. And that mentorship sponsorship is one of the critical needs to start off your career. Sarah? My first um, introduction to industry was actually when I was at Penn, when Dr. Cope retired Cook actually endowed a fellowship position in his name, and they gave it to a fellow a year. And I was the Cope Cook endowed fellow. And so that was my first sort of introduction to the role that industry plays in interventional radiology and understanding that devices are our world. That turned out to be a really important relationship. And I still do a lot of work with Cook to this day. As far as, you know, being a part of the big trials, that was all, again, as Nadine said, mentorships. So Michael Sulin served as mentor sponsor, uh, Bill Rilling, Reed Omery, all of those folks sort of guided me into the research realm. And then how do you get things funded? Well, you certainly have to make connections. You have to network. And once you've done that and proven yourself as scientific-minded, a good researcher, ethical, smart, and can complete the project or task at hand, then I think those relationships build, they trust you, and then they keep coming back to you for more. And I think part of it is you sometimes have to take that first step, right? I mean, even though it sounds overwhelming, I mean, the imposter syndrome is a real thing, but it's taking that leap of faith and believing in yourself, uh, but you have to start somewhere. So Fred, you kind of came at this with a slightly different angle. Clearly, you have what I call a tinkering brain. Not all of us are engineers. Is there hope for people who may not necessarily be in the garage tinkering with stuff bought from Home Depot, for example? One thing that maybe I'll dispel is that I'm not an engineer. I studied history in college. 
the thing I learned at a very early age, I was a musician. I can't tell you how many times I would pick up a great instrument and sound instantly 20% better. I think I realized at an early age how important great technology is. And for interventional radiologists, we're extremely good at putting needles where we want to and catheters where we want to, but having a great instrument, you know, having great imaging guidance and then an end effector is really important. And I think that my only skill is that I have very little patience. And, uh, and if something is not optimized or not good, then it really bothers me. And I'm a very persistent person. And it takes somebody like me, I think, to see what the endpoint can be and what a great instrument or device can be. But then it takes a whole series of people led by somebody like Laura to make that dream a reality. You need a great visionary business leader that can put together usually a large team because our devices are getting way more complex integration of mechanical engineering and computer engineering and all kinds of things now that are beyond the ability of a single person to really put together. And so you need a great business leader to do that. Jim and Laura, where do you see IR going in terms of the device world? We're in a specialty that's very unique compared to other specialties. For us, a generation of devices or a generation defining a procedure is probably two or three years. If you think about a complicated type case, whether it's oncology or vascular, if you're doing it the way you were doing it three years ago, you're probably a little out of date. If you're an ophthalmologist or an orthopedic surgeon replacing a knee, you're doing it the exact same way you did the last thousand but for us, we have to constantly evolve. And we've seen that evolution in devices. And because we work so closely with industry, we have strong industry ties. And I think one of the things that's really important is that those industry ties remain strong for us to continue to grow and evolve. And I think the key in that is honesty and disclosure. And I think you can have great industry ties as long as you're straightforward and honest about it. I love interventional radiology because it's such an innovative group and is always developing new procedures, right? Whether it's bringing imaging or devices in or in how they apply AI, it's just a constantly moving and changing group, which just makes the physicians and the innovation fun to work with. And as I think about especially younger physicians and how they're going to own their success, I think it's first and foremost about the choices they make and making active choices. And so it sounds like both Sarah and Nadine got into this a little bit because of a mentor. But I think if it's something you love and you want to do, you can make an active choice to go into it. And it's not that hard because companies are always looking for physicians that will really roll up their sleeves with us and help us design something that's effective. If you are in a device world and you have a whole bunch of engineers, if you don't give power to your physicians to help you design, what you'll end up with is advice that works for the engineers, but not for the physicians. And so having that engagement with physicians is so key. And I agree with Jim. So many people, they just really, really shy away. They're like, I want no, no conflict of interest. And I think Jim's 100% right that it's a lot about disclosure and just being very transparent with one another. Because if you are transparent and you work with your conflict of interest committee, you should not have many issues. Your ability to bring something to market that really improves the lives of patients is the reason I left a big company and started the company with someone like Fred. And we have a technical founder, Dan Vanderweide. And there is nothing better. Ultimately, if it doesn't help the patients and doesn't help you do a better procedure, then we've essentially failed. It intrigued me that there's been such a shift in thinking around conflict. And I don't know if it was the Sunshine Act that brought that about. 
I think this is kind of a swing of the pendulum. So there's a huge lawsuit in California. They had industry paying the doctors like plane tickets with personal jets. And this is something to what Sarah pointed out. It's about being ethical, right? So these clearly were not ethical people. But I think, you know, it went from doctors who have relations with industry are like just being sold and you're selling yourself as a physician to kind of now swinging to like the opposite way where like you shouldn't have any contact with industry. And I think eventually it'll just kind of stabilize itself to somewhere in the middle. But I think that's kind of where it came from, this whole notion that as a physician, you can be bought at that point. And that's not true. And I think as long as you're ethical and as long as you're pointing to your true north, I think those collaborations are really important to move the field forward and can actually help patients rather than hurt them. You know, if you go back 25 years or 20 years, people never disclose conflicts. But as that era kind of ended and physicians started to disclose, I actually think it's super healthy. I think you said earlier, over-disclosing. I disclose my conflicts, even though it'll say disclose anything pertinent, you know, to this presentation. I disclose everything and everything I do. And, and I think for the survival of our specialty and for the betterment of patient care and to help patients, we need these relationships. I guess I'm glad there's oversensitivity rather than undersensitivity, but obviously everybody has a lot to give if they want to give. And I think that we shouldn't be shy or embarrassed about working with our industry colleagues. I think there are some people who overdo their maybe commitment to a company a little bit, but I think as long as they're disclosing their conflicts, that it's okay. It's, it's not a bad thing. And it's something we should foster. And I hope that what we're doing here helps to break some of these barriers, especially for people who feel that it is bad. Fred, you've sort of noticed that too recently, that people tend to be much more risk averse. How do we turn this tide around? Just last week, one of our junior faculty was asking me about being a consultant for a company and how this might tarnish her forever and this and that. And I'm thinking to myself, you're so talented. We need you out there. But I would just reinforce to any listeners out there, especially the talented young women in, in interventional radiology, that if you don't get involved with some of the companies and get involved with design and, and the use of some of these products, um, somebody will, and they may not be as good as you, and they may not have as much insight as you do. And that is really, from my point of view and from the patient's point of view, that's really sad. The other thing is that from your point of view, getting involved with industry is a career builder. I mean, I look at Nadine and Sarah, who I've worked with for many years, and part of their success is that they have led industry trials. They've worked with various companies. Not only has it built their own personal expertise, but then when you are looking for somebody to talk about a specific procedure or product or how you use something, you want to go to the people that know the best and, and have been working with it the most and that's Nadine and Sarah. And so I think it's a, not only is it a good for patients, but it's a career builder. And we just need to encourage women to be involved more with industry, I think. I totally agree with you. The ability to maybe later bring in grants or be part of trials or learn how to do things, opening doors and networking through industry may lead to career opportunities later in life. And I, I do think there are two types of people that are out there giving talks. There's people who are really interested in innovation and devices and science, 
And then there are a group of people doing the same old thing a hundred times in a row to get an honorarium, and that's their whole focus. And I think that's not what this is about. Those people are always going to be around in every specialty, but that may be what turns some people off because they see that. But just like in any profession, you have to kind of look past some of the noise to get to the core of what's good. And as Fred said, we have to get more women involved. It's a glaring disparity, and it's something that both sides industry and our society need to work on together to change. One of the other important things for women as they're going through thinking about it is to make sure that whoever they are partnering with shares their ethics and goals and to make sure you're having that open conversation about what level of engagement do you want to have um, and what are going to be your rules of engagement. And that doesn't mean they can't ever change, but you know, Fred and I are co-founders and we have some very clear rules. If someone comes and talks to Fred about pricing, he says, you need to go see Laura. And people will do that to him. People will try to leverage him. And that's where if a woman is involved or any physician is involved in the industry, they just have to be comfortable and confident that they can say that is not the part of the business that I'm involved in. Because I think that's where people start to feel unethical when they start to get leveraged by other people. And I think you just need to make sure that you're partnered with a company where you know if you say that, it's going to go back to the business person. And that's the business person's job to take care of that. And I think the more things you can kind of talk about like that and make sure are well aligned, the better the partnership's going to go. And companies really need long-term partners. I mean, Fred and I have been partners for you know, 15 years. Um, we have multiple companies together. And for our current one, Lucent, we went into the breast surgery space and we needed to go find female innovators. And it was very hard. We actually did some research to show how few women are actually on patents themselves. And patents are a career builder. And many, many times those physicians, even if they're not tinkers, they come up with something that is patentable in the context of how it's used with the patient. And that's really valuable. And so I think in any of those situations, you know, you can just make sure that you have the right engagement structure and dialogue to make sure that it works very, very well for both parties and remains very ethical. You can't go to a company and say, I have an idea, but I'm never going to tell you anything about it till we sign a non-disclosure. So you've got to get a little bit. So do you have any thoughts on that? How do you make those well, connections without giving too much? Yeah, I think the best way is to go through someone who you trust that knows that company or knows someone in an adjacent space. Fred and I probably talk to a physician with an idea almost every other week in some form or fashion. And we, of course, kind of have a reputation of being very ethical about things. But to the extent you can go with someone who's trusted, who's done that before, who's been somewhere in industry as a physician crossover, whether it's Jim or Fred, they'll be able to ensure you're talking with someone who is going to be ethical. So if you bring something to the table that is patentable, that you get credit for it. The other thing I would highly recommend, and this is both on the physician side and on the industry side, if someone wants to do one of those meetings with us, a physician, we always take two people. So I always go myself and I always have someone else go with me. And if you're a physician, you should do exactly the same thing. And you should try and have some documented minutes out of it. Because in both directions, having an additional person at the table that heard what was said can be very valuable in a future dialogue. And it's been both ways. We have had physicians who disclosed something to us, said we took their idea and we can show them in the patent five years earlier. And it's the same with, with some physicians in some industry. So I think a really good best practice is if you are going to go and disclose something or have that, even if it's under confidentiality, I would take a second person that you trust. And I would look for someone you know who can help you find the right person. And sometimes when Fred and I are jointly looking at something, we say, you know, listen, that is a fabulous idea, but there's not a big enough market for that. So we can connect you with these two people. It's not going to be of interest probably to a company, 
we had someone who wanted to do MRI phantoms at a business. It's needed, but it's just not a huge market. And so we helped them find a manufacturer and they're doing a great thing for their specialty. And sometimes that's what it is. And it's still a great contribution. It just might not be a whole company. So anytime you can get some guidance around that, it is helpful. And I know there's a number of people who within interventional radiology have a lot of contacts that can be trustworthy. And I think that's where the mentorship comes in as well. One other lesson that I think Laura taught me is that, okay, there is some value to an idea. But there's an incredible amount of sweat equity behind any idea before it becomes a reality. You can gather 15 people and millions of dollars to put behind that idea to make it a reality. And so just because you came up with the sky is blue doesn't mean that somebody can take that and make that into a product in five minutes. And so while you need to be cautious interacting with industry and you need to document and and have a second person, you shouldn't be approach avoidance because it's just not so easy to steal an idea. And most good ideas are out there anyway, in some form. I don't know if you could have said it any better. Ideas are a dime a dozen. They're as cheap as breathing the air. And most ideas are out there. You are so right. It's that next step. It's it's that inertia. And that next step is monumental. It's huge. And to Laura's point, without role models and mentors, it's very hard to get to that next step. But we talk to so many doctors that have ideas and they, they want an NDA. And then you look at a piece of loose leaf paper with some sketch on it. You know, you're kind of like, oh, good. But like, there's nothing really here. And it's not an insult to them, but just having the idea, that's such a small part of this whole process. Sarah and I have talked about this. You only have so much time in your life, right? And then here comes another new device, which is good, but you know it's not going to change the world. And more importantly, it's three times more expensive. And you think, I'm never going to get this to a patient. How do I politely say no? I've developed basically an infrastructure at MCW. So all of the clinical trials that anybody that approaches me or any of my partners get vetted at a faculty research meeting. We look at all trials that come to our plate, whether we like them, whether we don't. And then we discuss them. Does this make sense in our portfolio? So we have vascular trials, we have embolization trials, we have IO trials. So we have the whole gamut and we want to make sure that we we have a balanced set of trials and IITs and industries. So we have a big portfolio. And so when we have a Me Too trial come along, we say, well, does it make sense? One, and we have a whole sheet, the investigator that brings it forward, fills out and says, you know, is there authorship? Is there, you know, a bunch of different questions to ask to see, does this trial make sense at our institution? And then does it financially make sense for the institution? Are we going to be able to run this trial financially? Because that's really important. Is there money in there for a research coordinator? And if there's not, then we say, is this so important that we need to do it? And then if it is, then we need to find the funds. And how are we going to find those funds? And so this vetting process, we go through, we get the trial, we vet it, and then we vote. But it doesn't have to be unanimous, but really majority. And then I go back as the vice chair of research and say, we assess the trial we've got a competing trial, or right now this doesn't make sense for us given our portfolio, we're full at the moment. And we appreciate it. We like to continue to work with you. But one of the things we also assess is whether this trial is important for continued involvement and relationship with industry. Maybe this relationship is so important that we have to build it. And so we want to be part of that trial. I want to change gears for a little bit. And I want to hear from the folks who have crossed across to the other side, like Fred as a founder and Jim as the CMO. Physicians are known to like our autonomy is the way I would put it. 
Any wise words, insight into that crossover? My personal example is maybe not a good one because I found a CEO that I trust and that, that I personally like, and that I think understands the different roles of what a physician should be doing and should not be doing. And who really, frankly, taught me um, how to be an effective physician within a company. I never had any interest in being a CEO not even a CMO because as Laura knows, I'm allergic to forms. And that's always my, that's always my cut point. If you're going to make me fill out a form, I will not do it. Um, I always want to maintain my university appointment as my primary job, so to speak. And so um, I feel like I've functioned more as a consultant to a company and as a founder, whereas I know Jim can give us some really good in insight into being a physician embedded within a company. So Jim, you moved over from like one of the most successful practices. That's got to be a change. It was a huge change. But frankly, I'll be honest with you, it was easier than I thought. I learned a couple of key lessons on the way. And I just want to say, I didn't leave because I was burned out or unhappy or got fired. I left because after 32 years, I thought it would be a new challenge. The reality is it's a huge challenge and it's super exciting. People come up to me all the time and they've been in practice like 10 years and they go, I want to do this. It's because they don't like what they're doing. I wasn't in that boat. I, I think if you're running from where you are because you're uncomfortable, I don't know if I have a lot of advice for you. But if you have enjoyed your career and you're looking for a transition, Laura said it earlier, I think there's a lot of companies that really need good physician input. And physician on advisory boards doesn't really cut it. You get a bunch of people sitting around, they're on six advisory boards, and not, they get together four times a year for a little bit of input. The company's functioning day to day. And so what I found since I took this job is so many other companies have said, gee, I wish we knew you were even looking at this. We need that. And so I know that the need is out there. And I would say that the definition, the job description is just like IR is very different at every institution. People do spine work, people do cancer, people do vascular. As I've looked around, I leaned very heavily on friends and mentors who had done this to figure out what type of contract to ask for, what my job would look like, what the pluses and minuses are. And what I realized is that the definition, in my case, of a chief medical officer varies widely. It's not a, the same job description for every company. So for me, I'm not overly interested in flying to Kansas City to have dinner at Morton's Steakhouse with three key opinion leaders one night and do that the next night somewhere else. I'm interested in impacting the company in a lot of different ways. So I have a big role with clinical affairs, uh, grants, trials, and papers, but I also have a role with marketing, with education, with business development, I'm learning on the job, but also what I realized, a lot of the experiences I gained over the years from working in my group, in leadership, on committees, working with industry, really served me well here. So I think there's lots of opportunities. The only thing I would say is that for me, once I jumped in, I'm all in. And so I'm really entrenched in this, just like I was in our practice. It's super rewarding, super fun. People ask me all the time, do you wish you had done this earlier? No. Do I wish anything? No, I'm totally satisfied and thrilled with my career. But for me, this was a perfect move. And thankfully, I had some very good mentors and, and people who guided me when I decided to do this that I was able to talk to. And it's been a wonderful experience.
If people are interested, I think lots and lots of companies really would want physician input. As a physician in industry, you have to have an open mind about learning how business works because doctors are smart people. But I mean, Laura had to teach me some very basic business things. You know, you think about Nadine's level of expertise in interventional oncology, for example. Well, there are business people on the other side of the fence that have that same level of expertise in a very small niche in medical devices. And we have to be very humble in in what we don't know. Believe me, I I learned that very quickly, (laughs) the things that I didn't know uh, within uh, industry. And I've been lucky that I've had a great teacher that has taught me quite a bit. I still would never be a CEO and even wouldn't be a CMO. I'd have just too much to learn. I've heard of some situations where physicians have come into companies and feel like they have all the answers, and that rarely works out well. That's what's exciting is you have to be humble and learn. But to the earlier point about physicians like to be in charge, I find that my say in what I do is more valued and more heard in industry than it was in my group. Because the truth is, very few of us have independent practices where we're not dealing with hospital administrators and other people who have their plans. And our plans aren't always in sync. They're often divergent. And what I found in a large healthcare system is oftentimes a physician who agrees is on the good side. And if you disagree, even intellectually, not a harsh political disagreement. When you disagree, you're the enemy and you can lead your group in some ways, but the cast is kind of set as to where you're going to go. I don't find that at all true in industry. I find that when you say something, people value it and listen to it. As I said, it's, it's a growth mindset. What I wanted to leave the audience with is jump in, jump in now. But it is the first step that you had to take, whether you start off the way Sarah started off the research process or industry that Sarah set up in Wisconsin, or whether you're thinking about being part of industry the way Fred is or Jim is, whatever it is, the time is now to do it. And we got it overdisclosed, but don't be gun shy about working with industry because that will make you a better physician. I think there's a lot of different roles for physicians so that when people think about it, don't think about it just one way. And the example I would use is we probably have six different positions involved with us currently. While Fred mentioned that he hates forms, we have a younger interventional radiologist who actually provides the clinical input for any of our complaints. And that is a regulatory process, but we need a clinical input. We need a physician input. And that person likes doing that part. We also have someone that really helps us with clinical trials, which is a different skill in designing them. And there is a physician, Fred is fabulous in front of the FDA. He goes with us to the FDA. He is able to clearly articulate the value proposition to the FDA in a way that everybody can understand. And so I just think there's so many roles that if a young physician wants to get involved, there are a lot of different ways without committing to, you know, like half your life or into, quote, crossing over permanently, a really great place for someone to start. It's not a huge leap, but could start to get them familiar with it and along a path that they might like and be pursue, or they might not, but it opens up another avenue for them and for their career. I think this has been a fabulous conversation, and I really appreciate everybody's input. This has many flavors to it, and I think we got a, a different flavor from all of you. And with that, I just, again, want to thank you for your time. That was a panel of IR experts who have worked closely with or served as leaders within industry. Nadine Abishude, Jim Beninati, Laura King, Fred Lee, and Sarah White, speaking with WIR Section Chair Nishida Kathari. 
We thank our guest hosts and panel members for their time, and you for listening to The King's Wire. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq.throwout.org.